Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. My name is David Seaton. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to do something just really cool with you guys. If you notice, we just did two songs. Normally, we do three or four right there, and one of the things that just came up is, like, we just want to do a concentrated time of prayer just to really focus in on things that we could ask God for. We're going to pray scripture, which is probably the most just honest and direct way to pray, because sometimes we don't have the words to pray. And so I'm going to kind of lead us through that. I'm just coaching you through this a little bit. You guys are going to pray silent with yourself. If you're watching on Facebook Live, we invite you to be praying with us as well. And so the first thing I want us to pray is this, is we're going to pray Luke 10 too. And Luke 10 too, it says that Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so I want us to think about that as we get ready to pray, is that if the harvest is plentiful, that means there's people ready to be saved, but the workers are few to go. And now here's the deal. You're going to pray that God would raise up workers, but the reality is that you are the workers, okay? So that God would raise us up as a church that goes out into the harvest to see people come to know him. So let's pray that now. Let's pray that God would raise us up as workers and that God would bring more workers for the harvest. Let's pray. Not desire to save. Now, yet God will not save any or everyone, 
we know that, that is, that is truth, but he desires to see all men saved. And so as we've prayed for workers to go into the harvest now, there may be someone that you know that is lost, that you desire to be saved. So we're gonna pray that we'll be in accordance with God, that we'll be in agreement with God's word, that he would save that person that he so desires to see saved and you desire to be saved. They may be sitting in this room with you. They may be watching online right now and you know that they're watching. So let's pray that those who we desire to be saved, God will save. To, to, to just to, to work in their lives, to woo them into a relationship with you, God. Your word says it. We're not asking for anything that is unreasonable. We're not asking for you to do something that you would not want to do. We don't believe that it is against your will. We are just in agreement with you. You desire to see men saved. And so, Lord, we pray now that you will save those who you've laid on our hearts. God, that you will raise up to us up to be those workers to take the word to them. But God, I pray that you will do your work, that you will do your atoning work through your son, Jesus Christ, and you will save those people. Guys, last thing that we're gonna pray about is this. Um, for any of you who are part of Collinsville Community Church, years ago in 2017, you know that we prayed every Sunday leading up to moving into this building because it was there and God presented his opportunity. Open your eyes for a second and look around. We, We've got 80 people max in this room. This is with capped capacity. We need a new building. And the problem is, is that sometimes we, we know that, but we don't ask. Well, Luke 11, 9, it says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And so if we are not asking the Lord for a new building, then maybe we shouldn't be expecting a new building. We are a growing church by the grace of God, nothing else. It is by his grace, by his goodness, by his sovereign plan that we are a growing church. We, we merged and we knew this building would be insufficient. And then COVID happened, which gave us like a little bit of a cushion. But if you haven't noticed, COVID's probably starting to slow. And soon, one day, we're going to be out of seats. And that is a sad thing, but also a good thing. So let's now go to the Lord and ask him for a, a piece of land. He's promised us land, just like he promised the Israelites. He's got a plan for us. He's, got, he's already got the plot of land, the building picked out. We just don't know where it's at yet. So let's pray and ask God for it. Lord, we are so thankful that you gave us this building. You saw in your sovereign plan and just in everything, Lord, for us to have this building back in 2017. But then in your sovereign plan in September of 19, Lord, you would have a conversation start to merge two churches that made no sense to most people. And yet you knew that on March 15th, 2020, there would be nowhere to go. And then in June 15th, we would need somewhere to gather and the why wouldn't be an option and that we were gonna need the support of coming together with Heights. And yet you merged us and put us here in this building, knowing that it would not be big enough for very long. 
And so God, because we've trust you, trusted you to this point, Lord, we are praying and asking you to give us a building, to give us a land, to give us the resources and the people to build that building or to remodel the building or whatever you see fit, Lord. We pray and ask now that you will provide and that we will not be settled and be content, Lord, but we will continue to go forward in the mission that getting a building is not the end goal. The end goal is to make disciples of all nations. But Lord, we ask you for a building, nothing big, nothing fancy, just big enough we can sit at your feet and worship you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. My name is Chris Wolf, and you may know me from the Kensington, Ridgemont, or Red Pine MCs. We may have served together distributing food, working in the parking lot, or on the safety team, maybe even setting up and putting down the equipment at the YMCA. I'm also part of HC Institute, which is our church's pathway for leadership. I have a pleasure of reading God's word with you today from Joshua 17, verses 14 through 18. Would you please rise? to honor God's word. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, why have you given but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and in its village and those in the village of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. those of you viewing online, thank you so much for tuning in uh, online. We uh, have much to cover today, and so if you're unfamiliar with who I am, my name is uh, Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor for today. I'm super excited for where we are headed uh, today, and so we have, I have a lot of content for you. I submitted more slides to the team this week than I have ever submitted for any sermon ever in the last eight years, okay? So if you're sitting there and you think, man, I feel like I am chugging out of a fire hydrant, that's probably the appropriate response for today, okay? It might be too much information, and I'm a little excited. I have a little bit of energy left from the marriage retreat. For those of you that are at the marriage retreat, thank you for coming. For the ladies that led us at the marriage retreat and then led us here, thank Thank you for leading us. And so, yeah, you celebrate them for sure. And so if I'm up here talking like Speedy Gonzalez, just play it back on the podcast and slow it down, okay? 
And so here's what we have seen so far. We're in this book uh, of Joshua. We're going to start Judges here shortly. We're doing a series called Lest We Turn. And what we're doing is looking at the difference, kind of the tension, right, between what happens uh, whenever we turn from the Lord and we look at ourselves or we turn from the Lord and we look at our stuff to be God to us, also looking at what happens whenever we turn from ourselves and we turn to God. And we look at what God is doing and and uh, how he's responding to us. And so last week, Sarah, if you could throw up my big idea, I introduced this big idea to you that was uh, my life for me versus my life for you. I think she has that on a slide for you if you need to write that down, if you're a note taker, if you wanna write that down online. My life for me versus my life for you. And really that um, kind of explains this tension that we're seeing whenever we turn from self and turn to God or we turn from God and we turn to self. And so last week I got to uh, reintroduce Introduced to you a man named Caleb, who you would remember from earlier in the book of Joshua if you've been with us. Caleb has been faithful. For 45 years, the scripture says he was faithful, and he was faithfully waiting on a promise. And if you remember, it was a promise of land and a promise of people and a promise of Messiah. Do you remember that? I think I even had you say it with me a few times, right? It was a promise of land, a promise of people, and a promise of a Messiah. And Caleb was there. He's 85 years old last week. He said, I'm ready. I'm faithful. I'm strong. He's ready to charge into Hebron, kill these giants. Is this incredible picture of my life for you. He had looked at the Lord and he said, hey, I'm all in. Everything that I have is yours. My life for you, God. My life for you. Now, as we progress, okay, you should have read a few chapters if you're going along in the reading plan with us. You see a lot of allotments of land, a lot of names that are really difficult uh, to pronounce. The allotments of land have been made for most tribes. And in these allotments, if we're honest, while we kind of blow past them, right? Some of you reading the reading plan, we're like, I don't know, I'm just going to skip this and mumble through it, right? <laughs> they're, they're, right? It's, just, it's what we do. It's, I mean, this is what it is. These allotments, while we kind of move past them, they're actually really important. Um, and it takes some time to kind of engage them and understand why they are so important. But, important. but what we've seen is that every allotment of land, okay, they've been conquering these lands and dispersing the land back to Israel as it should be. Today, we transition from seeing Caleb revealing my life for you, God, my life for you. We transition to these two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, modeling my life for me. And in that, we see this tension in the text here in Joshua across these two weeks. And so what I want to do is this for you today. I'm going to go a little Quentin Tarantino on you, okay? I'm going to start here in Joshua, all right, Joshua 17. We're going to go back 485 years, and we're going to look at Jacob and Joseph, a lot of J names for you. I'll try to be clear. I'm going to unpack where Ephraim and Manasseh, like where that blessing came from. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to circle back around to where we're at right here in Joshua 17, and I'm going to show your need for Jesus, okay? Sound good? There's three points that I have or three questions that I'm going to address for you. These are just three simple questions that I use whenever I'm studying the Bible regularly. I, I literally sat down, wrote out these three questions. It's what I do, and I don't know how to, what's happening in the scriptures. And then I said, okay, I'll just address those. And so what does the text say? Why is it important? And why do I need Jesus? Pretty simple, yeah? yeah. Oh, it's going to be incredible. We're going to hit like covenant theology. We're going to hit systematic theology. It's going to be like... Seminary 101 for you, okay? So here we go. <clears throat> what does the text say? Okay, the allotment of land has been given. We know that, right? Joshua's out there. He's just making it rain land on these tribes. He's like Oprah, right? Like, you get a land, you get land. Everybody gets land. And then he shoots off in a jetpack, okay? And so 
And we come to Joshua 17. This is what has happened. This land has been given. Joshua 17, 12 picks up here, which is what we just heard read for us. I will read through it and unpack it along the way. It says this, yet the people of Manasseh, verse 12, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of the cities that they had been given. Why? But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land, verse 13. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but listen here, but did not utterly drive them out. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to utterly drive them out. They were supposed to completely get rid rid of the Canaanites. Verse 14, okay? Then the people of Joseph, okay, eye contact, look at me. But the people of Joseph, it says, this is from the generation of Joseph. We're gonna get there in a little bit, 485 years from this point earlier. Joseph's sons are born. This is the generations of those sons, five generations later, okay? Verse 14, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, who's standing here present day, saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. Okay, so time out. Just to be clear, okay, here Joshua's given the land to Ephraim and Manasseh. They were supposed to utterly drive out the Canaanites. Not a metaphor, not a euphemism. They were supposed to completely destroy the Canaanites completely. The Canaanites were horrific people. They were terrible human beings. They like got off on child sacrifice. That's the type of human beings that they were. That's what they called worship. They would kill kids. That's who the Canaanites were, okay? And God says, that land, that's my land. That's holy land. That's, you do not deserve to get to go into that land. That's my land. Utterly drive them out, okay? Nothing less than that. And Israel did not do their job. And the tribes then, of specifically of Ephraim and Manasseh, did not do their job. You with me still? Lest we turn. This is why we're getting into this. They're saying, my life for me. So what do they do? They come at them like Joshua, like spoiled little freaking brats. That's what they do, right? God's always blessed us. Why aren't you? God's always been with us. Why aren't you? And think about this. You got to know some Bible. They're literally coming out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. Like they literally had nothing, and here they hit, the, like they hit a gold mine. Are you with me? It's two tribes are given one allotment of land, but it's the largest allotment of land. It just happens to have some trees in the way and some Canaanites who they were supposed to kill in their way as well. And they come here and they say, we deserve more. Why did you not give us something more? Do you not know, like, do you not know our story? This is kind of like what's happening in the text. Do you not know who my great, 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 great granddaddy is, Jacob? And he blessed our dad, Joseph. He didn't bless your dad, so where's my land? They come at these men just like some spoiled little brats. Two tribes and one large allotment is what's happening here in the text. Joshua has given them plenty, plenty of land but they do not drive the people out. Here's just a a simple point for you. While your salvation is given to you by the grace of God alone, you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn the promise of God. There's still work to be done. There's still work that we're responsible for. Pastor Davis just led us through praying for that, didn't he? Thank you for leading us through that. Okay, how's Joseph going to respond to these little brats? I love love this, man. It's just like a good moment for a dad here. Verse 15, here it is. Verse 15, Sarah. And Joshua said to them, if you're a numerous people, go by yourselves to the forest and there clear the ground yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and Raphim since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Joshua tells them what? He says, I mean, you're all that. Then you go take care of it yourself. 
You're such a big tribe, okay, little bitty piece of land. Why don't you go figure it out yourself? You've got God's favor and God's blessing. Just go figure it out yourself then, right? You're so blessed. You're so rich. Go get after it. How do they respond? Like little brats, because that's what they are. Verse 16, the people of, let's pay attention to the J names, it's hard. Pay, the people of Joseph, now referencing those tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, he said, they said this, the hill country is not enough for us. Still complaining. Yet all the Canaanites, who they were supposed to kill, dwell in the plain. They have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. What are they doing? They just repeat themselves. Blame game. Quite the opposite from what we've seen in Caleb as, from last week, yeah? What are they saying? They're saying, it's going to be too hard. Joshua, it's going to be too hard. They're, they're Canaanites there and they're trees. I mean, the audacity to have us do what God called us to do 485 years ago. Why would we do such a thing? Verse 17, then Joshua puts them back in their place. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, okay, Joshua, present time, said to the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. He's saying, go get it. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are very strong. What does he say? Go do your job, right? I love it. I was thinking about that this week. And whenever Josiah, I have a little boy named Josiah who's six years old. And um, whenever he was trying to get my attention as a little boy, he would look at me and he would say, look at my face. Look at my face with a W, look at my face. Because whenever he was not listening to me or whenever him and Emma, my little girl who's eight, were <laughs> radically getting on my nerves, uh, you know, and you, you get to a point like as a parent where you're like, stop hitting each other, stop kicking each other, no, you can't have candy. And then you finally hit that boiling point, you know that boiling point, y'all know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about online, just that boiling, somebody write like hashtag boiling point or something out there. <laughs> I would get on my knees uh, in front of Josiah and I would grab, he had the fattest cheeks, dude. I would grab his chubby little cheeks and I would say, look at my face. Like, stop hitting your sister. No, you can't have candy or, or whatever it is. I would get directly in his face. And so he started saying, look, look at my face, dad. And it, then I felt like I didn't even know how to discipline him anymore, right? <laughs> this is what Joshua is saying to this bratty, ungrateful generation. He's saying this, look at my face. Your responsibility is to drive out Canaan, and your responsibility is to get rid of those trees. I've given you the allotment. I've given you everything that the Lord has promised you. Look at my face. Go get it done to this bratty generation, which is absolutely incredible. Listen, just because you've received the promise does not mean you don't have more responsibility within that promise, okay? That's the whole text, Right? We could take communion right now, you know, be done, but we would just be left really religious because we haven't got to Jesus. And so that's the whole text, though. That's it. Now, the next second question we have to ask then, why is that important to me? Pastor, why is that important? I'm pretty skeptical of this stuff. Pastor, what's the relevant? How's this relevant to me? How's this relevant to me? This is a good question. Let me take you back 485 years, and then we're going to circle back around to this story. You still tracking? Yep. I'm going to try to keep it as... as um, as clear and concise as I can. I'm gonna throw a few names at you. I'm gonna try to take my time, um, but as I said, I'm a little pumped about it, so I'm, if I get, sorry. Three names I'm gonna give you. Sarah, throw them up for me. Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. Hopefully you have those for me. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Ultimately, that means they're the fathers of our faith. That's what that means, patriarchs of our faith. Abraham, a little bit further than 485 years before this time when Joshua was given a promise that he would have more offspring than there were stars in the sky. Even though him and his wife were barren and could not have children, God gives them favor, gives them a child, and they have a son whose name is Isaac. Isaac does literally nothing in the book of Genesis. He gets a few chapters on one page, and then it bumps on to his son named Jacob. Okay, Jacob is born of Isaac. Somebody say Jacob. Jacob. Okay, Jacob's name is literally changed to Israel. Okay, Jacob's name is literally changed to Israel. Jacob was a man who was of very little faith until he has an encounter with God and gets that name changed. Okay, so the next time you want to look down your nose at someone, just remember that Father Abraham gave his wife up for prostitution not once but twice founder of your faith. Isaac did next to nothing, and Jacob was sleeping with four different chicks and had 12 kids, okay? Next time you're feeling prideful as a Christian, just recall your roots, okay? And so, Jacob, leave it up here for me. Jacob, okay, has four different girls. He's got two wives. He's got two girlfriends, has 12 kids. Those 12 kids become the 12 tribes of of Israel. You guys are tracking with me. So then Jacob has a son of the 12 whose name is Joseph. Joseph, who you might recall, was sold into slavery by his brothers, enters into Egyptian slavery, rises to power, becomes the second most popular and famous and powerful person in Egypt, saves all of Egypt from um, famine, then saves all of Israel from famine, ultimately has to bring his 11 brothers in, forgive them, beautiful picture pointing to Jesus, he has two sons with an Egyptian woman whose names are Ephraim and Manasseh, which is what we're looking at today in Joshua. Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Grandpa Jacob, somebody say Jacob. Jacob. Grandpa Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead, okay? But he gets to go into Egypt. He gets to get saved. He gets to see his son. He gets to meet his two boys. And I think this is so beautiful that I wanted to read it to you and for you. So here's what happens in Genesis 48. Okay, Genesis 48. After this, it says, that's everything literally that I just said. After this, everything I just said. Joseph was told, behold, your father, Jacob, is ill. So he took with, his, took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, the tribes that we're talking about in Joshua. And it was told to Jacob, somebody say Jacob. Jacob. Your son, Joseph, has come to you. Then Israel whose name is changed to Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, the land that they did not drive these people out 485 years later, appeared to me in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you and I will make of you a company of people and will what? Give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession, right? It's been promised to them 485 years late earlier, but they have to do the work of driving these people out. You still tracking? Okay, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are, what does it say? Mine. Listen here, literally, he's saying to them, you have these two sons. They're now mine. We're gonna get to there in a minute. He brings them in. He's adopting them into the people of Israel in this moment. Ephraim and Manasseh, he says it again, what? Shall be what? Mine. Just as Reuben and Simeon are, who were Joseph's brothers. And the children that you father after them, they can be yours. They shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers. 
in their inheritance. Okay, so Papa Jacob, okay, look at here, eye contact. Papa Jacob, sitting here on his deathbed, does not think he's ever gonna see his son again, Joseph, gets to see not only his son, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's laying claim to his sons. We're gonna get, I'm gonna explain this to you a little bit more in a minute. And he's saying, they are mine. And then it continues, and it's so beautiful. Keep rolling with me, verse eight, Sarah. It says, when Israel, that's Jacob, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here in Egypt. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. This is so beautiful. Just picture, because this is what's actually happening, picture seeing your grandfather sitting in a nursing home or in a hospital bed, right? He thinks you're dead. He's about to pass away himself, and he's laying there, and he literally like, looks, he says, who are these? It's literally like Grandpa, Papa, Papa Jacob looks at him and says, well, my, my, like, who do we have here? Can you picture that? And then he's like, well, these are your grandsons, Dad. These are my sons. There's like this beautiful exchange here that is happening in the text that we can easily miss. Now, this is 485 years before where we're at in the scripture. What's important about this is that the blessing that Jacob has given to Joseph and his sons are highly important. They're so important that Moses, 400 years later, still remembers them and recalls them as to where this allotment of land should go. And now Joshua, in the text that we're in today, 485 years from that moment in time in that hospital room, recalls the same promise even in the book of Numbers and says, this is really important. We're gonna make sure that they get their double apportionment of land for these two tribes. And so all these men are coming after this, the leaders of Israel recalling this moment in time and they're saying, this is important enough to write about in the scriptures. And it's important enough to God to write about in the scriptures. And so when we read it, we don't wanna just look over it. We actually need to get into the weeds a little bit and see why would God put this in the Bible instead of saying, I'm gonna skip because I don't know how to enunciate the words. But we do that. It's important that we write these promises, listen, not just in the word, but that we write the promises of God on our kids' hearts. Like we have to teach our children what this stuff is about, okay? So Jacob, Papa Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, but it doesn't go the way that Joseph wants it to. So we're gonna continue reading. I want you to see this. Uh, when Jacob is blessing the grandsons, he switches his hands, which then in effect switches the birth order. There's a lot going on. Verse 17, here we go. When Joseph said that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim, it displeased him. Saul that he laid his right hand on Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and he goes to move it from Ephraim's head and lay it on Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But, the, but his father, Jacob, refused and said, I know, my son, I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will serve the older brother and he switches his hands, right? He and his offspring shall become a great multitude. Okay, I hope that I can make this clear. I know it's a lot of content, I understand. So twice Papa Jacob says, your boys are mine. That alone sounds pretty profound, doesn't it? Like, I'm just gonna take those. Those kids are mine. Could you imagine that? Just sitting in that scenario. These boys are are mine. The kids who come after them, hey, you can have those little brats, but these two, they're my children. I'm adopting these children. There's no question of it. It's like, I'm doing it. And so why is that important? If I were skeptical, I would be like, dude, well, who cares about what Jacob has to say? Who is Jacob, the patriarch? What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with the scriptures? What does that have to do with the story today? Here's why this is so important. You ready? 
Whenever Joseph, the son, went into Egypt, saved everyone, married an Egyptian woman, and had two kids, he officially, like, kind of essentially, his kids, those two boys, um, Ephraim and Manasseh, are orphaned. In their society, inheritance is the most important thing. And so what, quite literally, they would have been considered half-breeds. That's what they would have been called, right? If you're into Harry Potter, you could say mudblood or whatever you're into, right? <laughs> they were basically, they were considered half-breeds. And what that means and why that's important is because that meant they had no inheritance. They only had what Joseph would have left him, which, which would have been a lot. I mean, he was the second in command for Egypt, right? But it wouldn't have been enough to fully establish and sustain generation after generation after generation after generation. And in a culture and in a, a community there, right, where... Um, inheritance is the most important thing. Like that is your 401k. It is your livelihood. Their inheritance would eventually ran out. And so where they were uh, born a mix of both countries, essentially they have no country. They're homeless. They're orphaned outside of Joseph. Once Joseph died, anything could have happened to them. They were essentially a nobody. They were no one. That's important for us to pin in our minds for just a moment. And what Jacob is doing here, right, is he is saying, these sons are mine. Like, I'm bringing your sons into the covenant family of Israel. And listen, this is what's so, I mean, I prayed all week that the Spirit would just like make this feel as profound to you as it is. He's not just adopting the two boys. He's saying every single generation that ever comes after these people are going to be grafted into my family. They're going to be grafted into the nation of God. And so God is not just leading Jacob to adopt two sons, like he's leading him to adopt millions for generation and generation and generation in this hospital room, he's saying they are mine, and by extension saying everyone that comes after them is coming into our family as well. Do you see the mercy of God in that? Like the grace of God. He's saying they will not be orphans, they will be mine. You still tracking? We know this to be true because the book of Hebrews 11 says this, by faith, Isaac invoked a future blessing on Jacob. I guess he did something there on that one page. Verse 21 says this. By faith, Jacob, Papa Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He just does it, listen, just on faith. For the skeptic that's in the room that says, that doesn't make any sense. You're exactly right. It made no sense what happened in this room. It made absolutely no sense, listen, outside of the grace and the mercy of God the Father. It makes no sense what's happening. And so unless God is doing something, it doesn't make any sense. So what is God doing? What does it mean to be adopted into this kingdom? What is, what is Jacob doing in adopting these boys in? Listen, let me be clear. God does not have to do anything that happens in this text right now. God didn't have to invite those kids in. Didn't have to invite every generation after them in, but God being rich in mercy says, this is the way it's gonna be. And Joseph says, hey dad, this is not the way, right? He's like, don't switch your hand. He actually gets mad in the Hebrew, pulls his hand off his son and says, no, this is not the way. And Joseph, or Jacob just responds, I know. I know it doesn't make any sense to you. It doesn't even make any sense to me, he's saying. But on faith, he's saying, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do what the Lord has called us to do. You still tracking? All right, let me keep rolling through this then. So then Joseph's descendants, descendants, okay, Joseph's descendants now, 485 years in the text where we're at in Joshua 17, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, spoiled little brats that they are, have forgotten what they have been invited into. You understand? Like they've forgotten the promise. They have all the entitlement, 
but they forgot the promise. They forgot that they were orphaned, that they did not deserve anything, that they had no home, that they were outside of Egypt, they were outside of Israel, and yet God, being just rich in mercy, invites them in and adopts them into his kingdom. And so they're looking at Joshua, and they're saying, you must not be listening to us. And Joshua's saying, no, 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 you must have forgot the promise. Like, you must have forgot your inheritance was nothing. You deserve nothing. And this is why Joshua looks at them so bold and says, look at my face. You don't even deserve those trees. You deserve to be put to death by the Canaanites. And yet God has invited you into his kingdom. He's invited you into his family and he's bestowed a generational blessing on you that will literally last until Christ returns. Like that's the depth of the promise. Listen here, that is the same for us, church. That's why it's important that we talk about it. Outside of the gospel and outside of Jesus Christ, listen, we deserve nothing. Nothing. You know what we deserve? Hell. Death, Donna says, death. (laughs) It's also what the Johnson kids say when I say, you know what you deserve? Death. But can I have candy? Sure. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, nothing. And and here's what I mean by hell, right? Hell is not like some dude dressed in a, you know, a, a red onesie running around poking people in the butt with a pitchfork. Hell, I might have said death. Hell is simply the absence of God's grace. It's the absence of God's promises. It's the absence of God's mercy. It's the absence of God's land, the absence of God's people. But it's not the absence of God's Messiah because he's going to rule and reign over it. That's all that it is, which is terrifying. And so Joshua is saying, in effect, to them, that's what you deserve. I'm saying by extension to you now, that's what you deserve. And that's what I deserve. Not because of anything that we've done. We're born into the curse of sin. And yet, the orf- being orphans that we are, the Father, just being rich in mercy, has looked at us who are in Christ and said, you're mine. And it's a promise that stands for us and a promise that stands for eternity until Christ returns and ultimately fulfills that promise. But hear the warning of the text. Listen, you will never be satisfied. Listen, you will never be satisfied. You will never be content while you're here until you understand the grace of God. And the only way that we can ever actually understand the grace of God is by understanding and owning we deserve nothing. We have done nothing to receive salvation. We have done nothing to enter into relationship with Jesus. God has accomplished and done everything for us. And until we can wrap our minds around that reality, gratitude, it does not exist to us. Humility does not exist to us. Entitlement does. I don't want to clear the trees. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to have to pray. I don't want to have to read. I don't want to serve a food truck. I don't want to have to go to a marriage retreat. I don't want to be a part of a missional community. I don't want to have to make an entree. I don't want to have to. And that's where we set, right? Until we're like, the grace of God is what separates us from others. That is solely it. It is only this understanding, listen, that changes our lives and our minds from my heart for me to my life, or my life for me to my life for you. The gospel is the only thing that does that. And the most powerful way that we can talk about that is through what's called the doctrine of adoption. Can you handle some more? I still got some time. Yeah. You guys want some more? Okay. That's a lot. It's like four sermons in one. Let's be honest. So why do I need Jesus? We're getting into that. You feel us getting into that, yes? Starting to feel the tension of the text. I was just sitting in my office like, man, just thinking through this is so good for my soul. Why do I need Jesus? Why does Corey need 
Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? Let me teach you what happens when you come to faith, okay? I told you to bring a notebook on Facebook. Let me teach you a little bit about what's called systematic theology. When you come to faith, there's a lot of things that happen. I'm going to share three things with you, okay? You throw this up for me, Siri. The first thing that, that happens is this. It's called regeneration. And whenever you come to faith, you experience regeneration. That means like new life, new spirit, new hope. Old self is dead. New life comes alive. Here's ultimately what I want you to know about regenerations. Jesus's life literally becomes your life. Jesus's life, his perfect life literally becomes your life. And you say, but I'm not perfect. Do you know my thoughts? You want to hear about the argument on the way here? To that, I would say, I know. I understand that. And so did God. That's why the second things happen. It was called justification. And what does that mean? That means that Jesus' death literally becomes your death. That everything that a sinner deserves simply becomes, um, be Jesus becomes whatever he enters into the cross. When he goes to the cross, his death becomes our death. So his perfect life becomes our perfect life. I'm not perfect. I know. And Jesus' death, he knows. Christ knows. And so he dies for you. And then his death literally becomes your death. That should liberate you. You don't have to beat yourself up for not being perfect. Because Jesus was beat up in your place. You still tracking? Yep. And then the third thing happens of seven things that typically happen, but third, that do happen, third thing happens called adoption. And this is where God brings you into the family of God, where he looks upon you and he says, my, my, who are these? And simultaneously says, they're my children. And he brings us into his family. And that literally means that Jesus' relationship becomes your relationship. You're like, I don't feel connected to God. Jesus is. I don't feel like I'm in the presence of God. Jesus is in the presence of God. I don't know that I can feel God in this moment. I'm praying. I'm not sure that he's listening. Listen, Jesus is there and listening. So every aspect of Jesus' relationship becomes your relationship, whether you can feel it or not. Dude, that's incredible. That's like so, gives me so much Hope, listen, God could have done any one of these three and it would have been sufficient. Like it would have been enough. He could have gave me new life, that would have been enough. He could have just said, you're not guilty, that would have been enough. But he doesn't, he does all three. And so he looks at us and he says, not only am I gonna save you and redeem you, but as a good father, I'm gonna bring you into my family. You are mine to receive the same inheritance that Christ Jesus has received. Land, people, Messiah. Dude, that's cool. How cool is that? Am I the only one? Sorry, Facebook, I've not addressed you, but we know you're there. And then we have this like in the text. Let me just further press this point. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. We'll hit it quick, quickly. But when the fullness of time had come, God what? Sent forth his son. He does not call us to do anything. He sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, under the legalism of the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, still doing everything. God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. Even when we don't feel like he's a good dad, the Holy Spirit in us is saying, he's a good dad. He's crying out from inside of us. Do you hear me? God literally does everything for us. Let's keep rolling into John 1, 11 through 12. It says this, he came, Jesus came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he what? He gave them the right. Listen, gave them the birthright 
to become children of God by nothing they were done, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of whom? God. This is such good news for us. He says, you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything. All you did, you just received the reality of your spiritual position. You're mine. You were orphaned. No home. You're mine. Brings us into his family. You want one more? Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So even that, he's calling us to himself. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father. The spirit himself, again, bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God and of what? Children then, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. What is Romans, what was Paul saying in Romans? He's saying everything that has ever been promised in the scriptures is yours. Everything, land, people, Messiah, it's all yours. What did I do to deserve it? Nothing. As a good father, he simply laid his hand on your head and said, you're mine. My gosh, we could quit there, couldn't we? Man, this is so good. It's, it's just incredible. I think about it like this. Keep that um, regeneration t- post up for me. Post. <laughs> Slide up for me, if you could, Sarah. Think about it like, like this. Uh, uh, hopefully this works. Uh, in December, uh, we got to adopt our, our baby, two-year-old now, uh, whose name is Kaysen. Okay, um, when we fostered Kaysen, we said, we're going to provide for him a new life. Okay, he was born addicted to heroin, crazy family upbringing. You know, we said, hey, we get to provide for him new life. Now we don't, not spiritually, just physically. You guys still tracking with me? I'm just trying to help you think through how this thing works. We said we're going to provide for him a new life. Whenever he came into my house, I became his legal guardian. His legal status changed. Justification. It literally changed. Right? I became his guardian. I became the one responsible for him. But listen to here. But in adoption, okay, there was a moment in time where Andrea, that's my wife, Andrea and I have a conversation and we say, it's not enough to just give him new life. Like it wasn't enough to just bring him into the home and legally be responsible for him. Listen, we wanted to give him our name. Like, like that's what the Lord is saying in adoption. Like he, it's not enough for him just to save you. It's not enough for him just to invite you into the kingdom of God. But listen, he wants to give you his name. Like, seal you in himself. Are you tracking with me still? Like, it's so much more than we deserve. And in that, like, we get the name of the Lord placed upon our heads. Jesus' life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. His relationship to the Father becomes my relationship to the Father. That's what adoption is. It's incredible. Have you ever heard this before? It's so good. This is so good for me. His life, my life, his death, my death, his relationship, my relationship. Listen, whether you feel like it or not, this is the reality of your spiritual walk with the Lord. Three things of seven that happen. Listen, adoption is God's response to your salvation. Listen, in salvation, God moved towards you, redeems you, saves you. And then listen here, in adoption, he moves towards you a second time. And he says, that wasn't enough for me, for God. It would have been enough for you, but it wasn't enough for me. And then he puts our, his name upon us. 
puts his hands on our head and says, you're mine. Everything that I could ever offer to my son Jesus has become yours. That is the gospel. And with that in mind, now I think we can stand together and take communion because that's incredible. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And so I have running out of time. So, so why do we need Jesus? Let's stand together and take communion and be reminded of our need for Jesus. And I could have talked about that for like 36 more minutes if I were allowed. So good. So why do we take communion, Pastor? What are we, what are we doing? What do you have for us? As you get those communion cups ready, I'll turn to 1 Corinthians. I love reading 1 Corinthians over us every week. And Listen here, communion is God's way of reminding you of your adoption. All right, when we take communion, when we pull out that wafer that represents Christ's body that was broken for us, it's a reminder that his life was our life for generation. As we go to the cup and we see that cup representing Christ's blood that was spilt for us, it's a reminder of our justification. We have been justified. Communion is never, should never be a religious thing that we do. It is highly relational because in adoption, God becomes highly relatable to us. He becomes relational. And so when you take communion, don't ever settle for allowing it to just be something that you do every week because it's so much more than that. It's a reminder of the adoption. It's literally like God in this moment takes the adoption papers and slides them across the table to you again. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. And he says, I know sometimes you don't feel me, but here's a physical reminder and it is called communion. And so as you take this and you eat today as Christians as a meal for the saint, God, may, may you do it not with a religious heart, but with a heart that is full of repentance and eager to come to the Father again and again and again, just as he does you. Amen? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians over you while they finish setting up. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is Paul speaking. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in remembrance of your adoption from me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant, a new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, if you've not taken already, feel free to dine. Thanks.